This is a podcast from BFM 89.9, the business station. What's the focus on BFM 89.9, the business station? 9.37 a.m. Good morning. You're listening to The Morning Run. I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Wong Xiaoning and Keith Kam. This is WTF or What's the Focus? Our weekly roundup show of the top stories this week and other news tidbits that you may have missed. Now, as we go into the weekend, it is Chop Go May. That's what, the 15th day of That's the Lunar New Year? The the ultimate, the finale? The finale. But I mean, uh, I was just, when, when, you, when you mentioned tomorrow, it's already Chop Go May. And I'm like thinking, oh my goodness, you know, two weeks have passed. How quickly that, 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 that has happened. And Xiaoning, I think you said something about uh, on, on Ringgit and Sense that you don't actually open your ang pao's until tomorrow. No, well, uh, yeah, well, the Ringgit and Sense is done by our colleague Mo Heng Ying. But I did say before that episode aired that, yeah, I have a tradition of not opening my ang pao's till, the, till after the 15 and then I sit down and relish opening each and every packet and doing a tally and seeing whether people understand the meaning of inflation in Malaysia. So we know what you're going to be doing on Sunday. I'm imagining you with your wads of cash kind of counting. It's a very thin wad because it's negatively correlated to age, unfortunately. Oh, I've got less then. <laughs> but Chap Kome is always associated with that practice of throwing mandarins. Oranges, yeah. Is that, mandarins. A Mal- is that a Malaysian practice or is that something that is you, done? It's, all- well, it's supposed to throw your orange in to find your, your partner in life, yeah, right? It's, uh, well, Chap Kome traditionally has always been seen as a Chinese valentine. Day. So, um, what they do is usually you just they just go to uh, those who are single, looking for partners, husbands, wives, boyfriends, girlfriends, whatever. You go to a body of water, uh, write your phone number or your name into an orange, and then just. Or is it your it Instagram ID now? <laughs> yeah, your Instagram ID now. <laughs> but you know, I think LinkedIn profile, LinkedIn profile, whatever, whatever. D slide into my DMs. Is that the right word? Uh, oh, you're really showing your age. I really want to know whether anyone's really been successful at this because I think at my age I probably need a pomelo to get it going <laughs> but never mind never mind that's just a joke but you know who knows alright well happy Chap Gourmet to everyone who is celebrating let's turn our attention to other uh, weekend milestones I suppose because this weekend on a slightly more somber note uh, also marks two years since the outbreak of the war in Ukraine and I think there have been several headlines uh, pertaining to Ukraine and Russia that we've been following over the past week yeah, so over the weekend, last weekend, Alexei Navalny's death shocked the world yet, but I don't think it was totally surprising because he is known as being Vladimir Putin's biggest critic. He is an anti-corruption campaigner and the amazing thing about him was that he was so brave and he had already overcome so much adversity. He had several attacks. He was being almost blinded by being poisoned by a nerve agent and at the time of his death, he, he was actually locked up in brutal conditions in a prison in Siberia. Yeah, not too far from the Arctic Circle. In fact, I, I was kind of surprised when he had recovered from one of those nerve agent attacks. Uh, he was recuperating in a hospital in Berlin and he voluntarily went back to Russia to face uh, prosecution and that's how he ended up with a 19-year jail sentence. Anyway, Navalny appeared in court just the day before he died and he did look thinner but his supporters didn't think that he was on the brink of collapse. Uh, and then on Friday, 
Friday last week, the Russian government said he had died from sudden death syndrome. Uh, obviously, the, his family, his friends, and most of the world, Western world indeed uh, said that whatever the cause, there is only one man to blame, and that's uh, Vladimir Putin. So as um, I think the world or a lot of uh, Alexei Navalny's supporters uh, and his allies uh, are mourning his loss, uh, other leaders have perhaps also taken the opportunity to, um, I don't know, draw parallels between their situation and Alexei Navalny. Yeah, uh, and that that one leader is actually Donald Trump. Uh, he used an interview with Fox News, of course, to compare his own legal troubles to the persecution of uh, of uh, Navalny, who had died in prison. In the interview that was aired on Tuesday, the former U.S. president and uh, said that Navalny was a very brave man who probably shouldn't have returned to Russia, but did not assign any blame. For the Russian opposition's leader's unexpected uh, death, despite prompts from host Laura Ingram, Trump didn't mention Putin when asked about Navalny, in, instead calling, uh, calling, calling him just a very brave guy that he had you know, uh, volunteered to go back. Okay, but I think the highlight of the interview was what Trump specifically said. He said that it's happening in our country too. We are turning into a communist country in many ways. I have eight or nine trials, all because of the fact that I'm in politics. Mm-hmm. Nothing mm-hmm. to do with the fact that perhaps you've been convicted of fraud, um, you know, the fact that your business empire is under question, nothing to do with that, of course. No, nothing to do with the fact that some people say you incited the riots in Washington on the 6th of January, nothing to do with those phone calls you made to some election co- uh, election officials saying, you know, go and find those, what, 3,000 votes or 4,000 votes, nothing, nothing, nothing but- to do with that, nothing to do with also, you know, basically saying, well, saying that this woman, you know, making up stories about people. Yeah, but his supporters are still going to be calling it fake news, right? So, Unfortunately, that mm-hmm. will be the case. Um, but in any case, let's swap over to another rather um, interesting uh, story in that shows um, when temper tantrums intersect with interviews, it does make for rather viral moments. And uh, we're turning to Australia for this because uh, the Woolworths CEO uh, had a rather unfortunate interview experience uh, with ABC that uh, ultimately ended up with him losing his job in some way. So he was facing a grilling from an ABC journalist over allegations of uh, price of price gouging and the deep-rooted issues with Australia's highly concentrated supermarket sector. Woolworths uh, CEO Brad Banducci has walked walked out on the interview, exclaiming, "I'm done." Kind of reminds me of somebody, right? Mm, yes, all this happened in 2018 uh, in an Al Jazeera interview when pressed on allegations. Shall we? Do we, do we see his name? Do we say his name? <laughs> the uh, convicted felon. Right? Convicted felon who recently had his sentence uh, halved. And of course, this is our very own Prime Minister, ex-Prime Minister, Datuk Sri Najib Razak. He walked out on this very infamous Al Jazeera interview when they pressed him on issues ranging from 1MDB, the pink diamond for his wife, to the murders of uh, Alan Tuya, to... Questions about whether he knew Jolo and he kind of just lost his cool and just walked out also. So it happens, right? I'm going to ask you all, in, in our lifetime, mm. I haven't done this as long as you, Keith, but I, has anybody walked out? Any, no, no, any one's of walked your... out. No, no one's walked out of me. But when I was looking at this, all I can think of was, you know, if, if Prince Andrew were watching this, he probably thought that, oh, I didn't realise that was an option too. <laughs> <laughs> that is one interview where perhaps a walkout would have been better than uh, staying in for the full one. Um, but yes, that is... Uh, 
creating a lot of debate, I think, in the social media uh, space in terms of how interviews or how certain people deal with interviews, mm. right? And how really, if you are a figure of prominence uh, and you are in a media interview, you need to expect uh, questions that come your way and you need to be prepared, I think. That yeah, was I one s- of the things that uh, Australian media were ta- talking about, the fact that perhaps are their business leaders not accustomed to that kind of uh, questioning? I mean, even here at BFM, right, we of course have guests that aren't always going to be happy with us 100% of the time, especially during our heated breakfast grills in some instances. But definitely, if you are a politician you then have an obligation to answer questions from the public, right? Because you've decided that you want to run for public office. And the same also then applies if you are in a business, especially mm. a business like a supermarket where... A public listed yeah, company Yeah, and so many people depend on a supermarket, right? And then there's questions of stakeholders, and stakeholders include not only shareholders, but the public. Mm. So once you take on that position, there is always going to be some accountability in terms of what your actions... So it's... But I... I I get it. Sometimes the questions can be tough. But if your company hasn't done so well or you've not behaved in the best possible manner, then, well, you... You have to live with it, right? You could also engage in some media training so that uh, you could seek the advice of some professionals who have some experience in this to maybe guide you through uh, some of the anticipated questions that might might, might arise. And prepare better, yeah. Yeah. Well, one person who seems utterly prepared, although I don't think she's done that all that many media interviews, to be honest, uh, that is Taylor Swift. And the reason we're talking about her is because, well, her concerts in Asia are up and coming. And I think Did there's a lot tickets? of anticipation. I'm shaking my head, sadly. Uh, I will not be part of that party, unfortunately. You didn't get the extra tickets. I did not get the extra tickets. Although if anybody does have extra tickets, I would be very happy to take them off your hands. Um, for... <laughs> but if you're not, if you're a scalper. <laughs> Not if you're a scalper, indeed. Uh, but there has been interesting news coming out of this uh, because coming up from how those concerts in Singapore, she's due to hold six of them, how they came about, yeah? Yeah, Singapore awarded Taylor Swift a grant to perform uh, there. Government authorities said this on Tuesday. They were acknowledging efforts to persuade uh, Swift to perform on the island, uh, which is going to be her only stop in Southeast Asia. And, you know, the kind of potential economic benefits that would arise from her concerts. And I think it's kind of a smart move to me as far as I'm concerned. I mean, the economic benefits are are, are immense if just going by that one night of Coldplay in at Bukit Jalil is is to go by. Yeah, so we don't actually know the quantum, although the it was told to us by the Thai Prime Minister, Sweeta Thavisin, because the Singapore Tourism Board hasn't weighed in in terms of how much they paid. But allegedly, she's been paid uh, equivalent of 2.77 million US dollars per show on the proviso that Singapore would only be the only stop in Southeast Asia. So more than 300,000 tickets were sold. So can you imagine the economic multiplier impact it has on the Singapore economy? Somebody did their calculations there, figuring that, uh, yes, it's worth it to fork out this much to secure her and make sure that she's exclusive to Singapore, drawing all these tourists to the city-state. And also reinforces the brand of Singapore, that it is really the concert destination for Southeast Asia. Bear in mind, they've had Blackpink, Coldplay and Ed Sheeran. We too have Ed Sheeran this weekend. This weekend. Indeed. 9.48am. Let's take a quick break. We'll come back with more of the stories this week. Stay tuned. BFM 89.9. 
9.49 a.m. You're listening to The Morning Run. This is WTF or What's the Focus? I'm Shazana Mokhtar with Wong Chaoning and Keith Kam. We're turning our attention to some of the stories that have been going around this week on our local scene. Uh, and earlier this week, we were talking about the issue of subsidy rationalization, yeah? And the mechanisms or the different proposals that are coming out in terms of how uh, the subsidies should be given to those mm. who are most in need. Mm-hmm. So do check out our podcast. Uh, with uh, Un- University of Malaya visiting expert Dr. Amjad Rabi. He was explaining... Uh a proposal that uh, he's putting forth where subsidies should be given to the elderly and to children uh, as a way of really ensuring that it reaches uh, those who actually need it. Yeah. Uh, but uh, ultimately, uh, what the government has rolled out is, of course, the PADU system, where they want to collect a whole bunch of data from Malaysians in order to ensure that those subsidies uh, go out accordingly. Unfortunately, I think it hasn't really gotten the reception that it needs in order to be effective. Because, yeah, I mean, data is important in order for the government to, you know, make proper economic plans to ensure the right subsidy, the right aid and, and, and the right cash handouts end up at the uh, with the correct people. So right now, because Padu isn't going as well as they were hoping, um, the government plans to use data collected from 217 departments and agencies, uh, including uh, for for government related programs, including these targeted subsidies, to make up for this low registration rates. Uh, it was also pointed out uh, by a reporter that as of February 15, the number of people who had updated their information in Padu was 3.43 million, equivalent to only about 10% of the country's 30 odd percent population. Okay, so I don't think anyone, well, at least I think the three of us agree, the concept of Padu is not a bad one. Mm. We should have a central database to get a clarity in terms of the Malaysian household. And so we are targeting the right people, offering them the right subsidies. And then in some way, it's also useful as a eventual tool to maybe even consider, formulate the right economic policies to help certain segments of society. The issue was the rollout of Padu, and I think there were questions about did you need something like 47 questions is available only on people who have smartphones. Uh, if you don't have a smartphone, mm. access to it is, is not available. There were, some cl- there were some initial IT issues. And of course, I think security issues still weigh down on people's minds, even though the com- government has come out to say and reassure people that there's no such thing. And I think those technical issues were also resolved quite quickly. But definitely, the initial start was not a good one. And even today, the fact that only 10% of the population speaks volumes. volumes. Now, my question is, if you already have so much data available in 217 departments and agencies by the government, and we have this MyCard, everybody has a MyCard, except for stateless children who so desperately need one, why aren't we using that information in the first place to build on the Padu system rather than start Padu from ground zero and then add on this government information? Yeah, I mean, uh, the idea of Padu is is good. I, I do agree with that. When I, I registered for Padu, I used a, a notebook to do it because, you know, smartphone, my eyes, they don't quite go so well together. Same I need here. a big screen for this. But my question is that when it came to registering for Padu and the information I, I put into the, uh, into the website, I, I realized that a lot of it depends on, relies on on your honesty, uh, mm. you know, to, to put in the data that you that you want. Yeah, absolutely. Whether the messaging should be not so much that we need nationwide uh, people, we nationwide use like everybody should sign up, which I agree conceptually, yes. 
But should the message be, if you think you need these subsidies, if you need these cash handouts and you need assistance from the government, you should then be the ones to sign up because then we can identify the people who do need it versus the people who don't need it who won't be incentivized to do it in the first place, right? Because let's say for me, three of us in a room, we probably won't be eligible for a lot of subsidies, right? Mm. So whether that messaging is going out to the right people, it's not the nationwide uh, registration rate to me which is important. It's making sure the right segment does it. Absolutely. And I'm sure there'll be lots of discussions on this as we head towards plans to actually implement the subsidy rationalization uh, in the latter half of this year. Uh, meanwhile, let's uh, in the little bit of time that we have, let's end, I suppose, on one of the big stories of this week. And it's really about uh, the ringgit in the sense that it's not very big, is it? It's one of it's at its weakest point against uh, the US dollar and the Sing dollar in a while now. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think there's just been a lot of how to say what would you call that navel gazing? a lot of uh, just trying to rack our heads into why this is the case, despite uh, Malaysia's economic fundamentals uh, being good. I mean, um, if you look at just the Singapore dollar alone, I've been observing it since 2019. And I realized that every... Did you say 2019? 2019, yeah. And I realized that every year since 2019, uh, the the Sing dollar has been hitting new record all-time highs against the the ringgit. But what was kind of alarming this year alone, and we are, what, the middle of uh, February, seven, eight weeks into the new year, it has broken... Uh, new all-time highs against the the ringgit uh, several times already. In fact, uh, within this this week alone, we it has weakened more than two percent. Mm. Uh, right now, one sing dollar is at three fifty five uh, something. It hit three fifty six or three fifty seven a couple of uh, days ago. Uh, that's just the Singapore dollar. And against the US dollar, it broke a twenty six year record after hitting going above the four eighty uh, level. Its intraday high previously it was in nineteen ninety eight during the Asian financial crisis when it hit four Very, very scary, lofty uh, levels now. Okay, so I'm going to wear my economist hat and I'm going to draw a distinction between the Singapore dollar and the US dollar. Singapore dollar, the the difference in some way is because they use their currency as interest rates, all right, to manage inflation. They don't actually use like a Fed fund rate to bring down inflation. Okay, so in the past, they've always maintained a high, strong Singapore dollar as a means to ward off the rising cost of living in Singapore because they're an importing nation. They don't really make anything. So it's essential that they keep the Singapore dollar strong. So in some way, it's slightly different from the US dollar. But I think the re- the, the the feeling that Malaysians get is why is our currency over the last 20 years or since the Asian financial crisis, why haven't we ever gone back to those levels? And yes, we may never go back because if we look at the examples of Thailand and Indonesia from that same period to now, they too have never recovered back to the 1997 levels. But their erosion is not as great as ours. So if we are being fed this story that our economy is great, that the fundamentals are stronger than it was in 1998, which it is, it is truly the case, why isn't that reflected in our currency? Mm. And the government says, oh, we've done really well. These are the investments we've made. I think nobody's disputing it. But there doesn't seem to be, it doesn't seem to be reflected in where our currency is going, unfortunately. There's a lot of um, articles, thought pieces uh, that have come out in terms of how this can be resolved, how the government should be looking at this. And we actually had a conversation uh, with P. Gunasegaram, the independent business writer. He wrote uh, an article, an opinion uh, op-ed in Malaysia Kini on how to resolve the ringgit's woes. Uh, that's well worth a read and well worth a listen. You can look up that podcast on our BFM app. 
Yeah. Um, this morning, just to bring everybody back home, Ringgit 3.5574 and according to Bloomberg, Keith, this is a new all-time high. There we go. <laughs> okay. And, and that, that's what you're going to take going into the weekend and the end of the Chinese New Year. Ask your relatives who work <laughs> in Singapore to give you Sing Dollar Ang Pao piece. Well, very quickly, I think if you are in Kuala Selangor this weekend, you may want to go for the program Madani Rakyat Zon Tengah that's happening. Um, and I think there's some discounts, right, that Ooh. are on offer? Yes, yes. Uh, so PTRM is offering 50% discounts on all your summons from February 23rd to the 25th. And this campaign is in conjunction with the program Madani Rakyat Rakyat Zontengah event happening at the Complex Sukan Kuala Selangor. The hours are 9am to 10pm on all three days. This is a great promotion for, you know, whatever summons that you have, uh, you've refused to pay and waiting waiting for a discount because we always... We'll, okay. won't be, we won't be disappointed. How about we not violate any rules and you don't have to pay any summons whatsoever, discounted or not. That is also an option. What messaging are we sending out when we do this? Oh, I was being sarcastic, by the way. I know you were. I know you made it sound like it was a supermarket promotion. Like, you know, go and buy this. It's half price today. Ladies and gentlemen, it's buy one, get one free. But the point is, why? what messaging are we sending out when we say even summons can be discounted? Well, we're going to leave you on that note, on that rather philosophical note. It's coming up to 9.59 in the morning. That's all we have uh, on WTF today. Coming up next is the 10 a.m. News Bulletin, and then it's over to Enterprise. Stay tuned to BFM 89.9. You have been listening to a podcast from BFM 89.9, The Business Station. For more stories of the same kind, download the BFM app.